My guest for this episode of the O'Reilly Data Show is Eric Colson, Chief Algorithms Officer at Stitch Fix and former VP of Data Science and Engineering at Netflix. We talked about building and deploying mission-critical human-in-the-loop systems for consumer internet companies. And also knowing that many companies are grappling with incorporating data science, I took the opportunity to uh, speak with Eric about his experiences building, managing, and nurturing very large data science teams at both Netflix and now at Stitch Fix. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica, here today with my good friend, Eric Colson from Stitch Fix. He's also slated to give a presentation at Strata Plus Hadoop World in San Jose, and we'll uh, talk a little bit about uh, what he plans to present. But uh, welcome to the Data Show, Eric. Thanks for having me, Ben. So first off, um, I know that uh, people in the Bay Area know you well because of all the work, good work you did at Netflix, but maybe the broader audience is, is uh, not aware of your background. But uh, let's talk a little bit about Netflix. And uh, uh, Netflix is one of these uh, companies that many people in the data space follow because one, there was that famous Netflix prize, but obviously a lot of people are also users of Netflix and pay attention to the recommendation system. So um, let's talk a little bit about uh, Netflix and uh, your work there managing uh, a large team and uh, how do you actually get things done at that scale, Eric? <laughs> yeah, great question. So yeah, yeah, I, I was the, the vice president of what we call data science and engineering there. So it was a large central organization that worked on many things throughout the, um, all the uh, different facets of the company. Um, and you know, one of the, the, the biggest parts of it was the data infrastructure, right? Hadoop clusters, et cetera. Um, and that's probably one of the most daunting things about um, you know, the scale of Netflix, you know, um, you know, so upwards of over 40 billion events per day. It, it, it's a, a Herculean effort just to keep the data moving through the systems. Um, and so that was uh, where a lot of the energy went was uh, you know, just keeping the stuff running and making sure that data was accessible to both um, you know, human systems as well as machine systems um, so that we can you know, do many different algorithmic techniques. Um, so first of all, that's the, that's the big part is what you need um, you know, as much uh, computer science uh, talent as you do uh, data science talent. You know, actually, uh, that just reminds me, uh, a mutual friend of ours, who I will not uh, name, uh, <laughs> talks about, you know, in a large company that many of our listeners have heard of, which I also won't name, uh, uh, people, people think about uh, these companies applying really sophisticated algorithms, but really there's the plumbing and infrastructure is so complex that sometimes even simple averages is enough. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it really is a daunting task, and the uh, amount of effort that you have to put into just getting simple things to run um, when you're at that scale is 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 quite impressive. And you know, we have very talented people that work on this stuff um, just to get the basics right. And and so forget about you know big and you know, humongous matrix factorization problems. Let's just get the simple averages done right. So there there is quite a bit of effort that goes towards that, and it's not. It, you know, depending on who you're talking to, it's, it may or not be their passion, right? There's others that really want to do the more intense uh, algorithmic approaches, and then there's others that love, that get, you know, they delighted on just to get the simple things to run because of the intricacies in the engineering. So different camps there. So there's a lot of uh, basically just 
culture and organization matters a lot at that scale, right? Absolutely. Um, you you know you have to set up an environment that sort of favors um, learning and even some risk taking uh, because you can't uh, with systems as large as that. You really and and more importantly dynamic, meaning we're constantly changing things. You really can't set up rigid processes. You're going to have to accept um, some. You know, you're going to have to sacrifice. Um, things like high availability in order to um, foster more innovation. So you have to really balance a couple of things there and you have to just, you have to, um, you know, get the people that are going to opt into that type of environment. It's not for everyone, right? There's a lot of people that would prefer more stability so that they can sleep at night or think straight, right? And you're not going to really get that at a, at a Netflix or even at Stitch Fix. You're going to, because there's, there's, these are cultures that favor innovation, even at the cost of occasional disruption in service. Um, so, so you take uh, fundamental algorithms like maybe a Recommender. Um, how, that must be a complex project to, to evolve and change that over time, right? Uh, absolutely. Now, recommendation systems at Netflix are, are very distributed um, across the organization. So there wasn't any one team responsible for it. Um, for example, my team did contributed to parts of it, but it was really more focused on the big data side, um, things that needed pre-compute, such as clustering and Markov chains. There's a few folks on my team that worked on those where these things could run in a batch process at night and then hand off results over to a Another team that would handle the more front-end recommendation engines and the real-time aspect of it. Um, so it's, it's a handoff of data in most cases, um, uh, highly summarized data um, that has you know all the smarts have already been pre-computed into it. So the benefit of running in a batch environment is you can afford a, um, a failure here and there, right? So depending on what your SLA is, if uh, things broke, you could always you might have time to run it again before um, a critical moment. In other cases, things change perhaps relatively slowly, right? In the case of um, some preference data or movie recommendation relationships between data, they may not be changing on an hourly basis or even, you know, uh, even days or even sometimes even weeks. There's some um, stability in some of the relationships. So you have some solace there that you don't need to uh, worry about the high availability, constant real-time place in those situations. Now, the other team, the, the, there was another team that did not report to me. They had the, that more daunting task of real-time computation, which is you know really hard, <laughs> and, um, where they have to keep track of what people, what movies people were exposed to, so they're not over recommending them, right? And so these are tricky and, and easy. They have to take into account the real-time context. They were just browsing over in this area of the website or in the app, and what does that mean to them, and et cetera, right? Those are much more daunting to take into account with the real-time tasks. By the way, one of the things that uh, s struck me and continues to strike me uh, with Netflix, and I think you've carried this over a little bit over at Stitch Fix, is uh, the relative openness and you know the, uh, the tradition of having tech talks, I believe. And I think it also uh, reflects in uh, in uh, people's interest in what's happening technology-wise inside Netflix. So I think I've told you this before, but at Strata plus Hadoop World, some of the more popular talks are just uh, Netflix engineers like Kurt Brown talking about the Netflix stack. Yeah, Kurt, uh, great guy. He used to work um, for me. He led what we call the data platform team, which is what I opened with. This is all that daunting stuff about how to handle big data. So yeah, he's um, still running the show there when it comes to data platform um, and, and has some great talks and some 
great strategy about how to do this stuff when you live in an environment that it's going to be anything but stable. Um, you know, Netflix moves at a very fast pace and it's not uncommon to find out, unfortunately, very late on things that, oh, all these, uh, we're switching our architecture. There, uh, Netflix also does a lot of open source stuff, right? They do. Um, they do. Some of which we've brought over to Stitch Fix, in fact. Right. <laughs> Some very useful features. And so, yeah, they're very uh, committed to you know building innovative technology. They're not going to um, uh, look what's on, on the shelf from vendors just because, it, not because they're averse to paying for things. It's more that they need to get what they want, exactly what they want. And you, and you do that through building it yourself. So, um, speaking of which, Stitch Fix, which mm-hmm. uh, uh, you and I have talked a lot about, but uh, this whole notion of human in the loop, human computation, is what I associate with Stitch Fix. So, at what point uh, did you become interested in this whole area? By the way, I'm still trying to figure out what the right term is. And uh, I originally I was into the term active learning, but that has never caught on. And what I've discovered, uh, Eric, is uh, whenever I tweet something, and it, human in the loop seems to be the term that people like. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of observing myself to see what uh, what wins out in terms of vocabulary. We use the term um, human computation at Stitch Fix. We have a team dedicated to human computation. The, um, it sounds it's a it's a little bit um, coarse to say it that way because we do have two, over two thousand stylists, and these are very much human beings that are very passionate about fashion styling, right? Um, but what we can do is we can abstract their talent into almost, you can think of it like an API, that um, there's certain tasks we need um, that only a human can do. We're, we're going to fail if we try this with machines. And so we have almost have pro, pro, sorry, programmatic access to human talent. And we are allowed to route certain tasks to them, things that we could never get done with machines, and they answer them much so more easily. So you have like a, a basically kind of... Uh a workflow where you score certain things and you say, oh, this, there's some uncertainty here, let's route it to a stylus, is that? Yeah, that's right. We have um, some of our own proprietary software that really blends together two resources, machine learning and expert human judgment. And it's, you know, the way I talk about it is we have an algorithm that's distributed across the resources. It's a single algorithm, but it does some of the work through machine resources and other parts of the work get done through humans. So how do you how do you decide who does what? That's a great question, uh, and it evolves over time. So there's there's a few you know principles you can adopt that are that will, are going to be very intuitive and make sense. Things that have to do with rote calculations are going to be obviously better done by machines. So this is stuff like you know matrix factorization, um, you know neural networks, whatever you want to do that has to do with a lot of rote calculations. Um, so uh, for our uh, non-technical audience, translate uh, what these road calculations mean in terms of fashion. Well, you can think of um, even the classic recommender systems, um, uh, collaborative filtering, which people recognize as you know, people that bought this also bought that, right? So those things break down to nothing more than a series of road calculations. Um, they're just, uh, you could actually do them by hand. If you, you know, being a human, you could actually do it by hand. It'll just take you a long time and you'll make a lot of mistakes along the way and you're not going to have much fun doing it. But machines can do this stuff in milliseconds. And so they can find, they can find these hidden relationships within the data that are going to um, help figure out what's relevant to um, a certain consumer's preferences and, and able to recommend things, right? So those are things that 
again, a human could, in theory, do them, but they're just not great at them, right? Uh, all the calculations. And every algorithmic technique breaks down to a series of rote calculations. Every single one of them where you're talking about, you know, you know, logistic regression or neural networks, they all break down to a series of rote calculations. And so we don't ask our human stylists to do that. They're, they would hate their jobs if that's what they did. But what machines can't do is things around cognition. You know, things about that have to do with ambient information or appreciation of aesthetics or um, even the ability to relate to another human. Those things are strictly in the purview of humans. And so we, those types of tasks, we route over to stylists. That so this is, so, uh, I guess in practical terms, this is what uh, gives customer suggestions that are uh, somewhat not mechanical and a little more, there's a little more... Uh, surprise element to some of the suggestions. Well, it's the, the way I think about it is it's leveraging the most amount of data and processing. So there's data is heavily structured data. You're going to do really well with machines, but we also get a bunch of unstructured data. Our clients could submit to us, um, you know, freeform notes that they write that, you know, uh, divulge parts of their lifestyle. Oh, but uh, can't you just uh, text mine that? <laughs> yeah, we, we do natural language processing yeah. to assist. But when you're talking about the type of accuracy we need, we feel better with human oversight on that right. stuff, right? Because there's obvious mistakes. We all get goofy recommendations occasionally, for, even on Amazon and Netflix. You know, you buy something on Amazon for your niece or nephew and you're forever plagued with toys and this type of recommendations, right? Um, so... But yet, humans would catch those things very quickly. They'd say, this is Ben, not Ben's niece, right? And they would correct those things. Um, so there is this, um, you know, dual contributions, and we're trying to harness both of them um, for additive results that um, the output would be better than either one could do on their own. And, you know, part of this actually was inspired from some work at Netflix in the later part of my tenure there. Um, you know, we were working on this new algorithm that would predict movie sick or TV show success, meaning, you know, uh, with streaming, you have to license uh, the content and you really get, um, you get one shot at it. You got to decide how much you're going to pay for this, um, to the rights to stream a piece of content. And there's usually two or three year terms to this deal. So you got to get this right. You got to know, um, you know, uh, how successful this piece of content is going to be, meaning how many people are going to like it and watch it. Um, and so we had these models that would predict this thing based on a ton of input data. Um, things like how did it, if it was a movie, how did it do at the box office? And you know, what actors are in it? What's the storyline? All these things. Anything we can get our hands on, we'll try in the model to see if it's predictive of how it will do. But occasionally, so we'd make our predictions, and then the content team would buy some of this stuff. Um, and occasionally we'll be surprised. Um, a certain... Um, movie or documentary, whatever it would, is, would do, um, in some cases, much better than we thought um, in terms of hours watched or whatever the measure is. Um, and, you know, we're baffled by this occasionally. And in one, one certain occasion, I remember we, we go, why is that particular movie doing well? And we couldn't figure it out from looking at the data. It just seems like average in, in every way, but it was doing really well, differentially well. It's getting played more than we would have thought. And then we looked at it. We pulled it up on the website and looked at it. And there's, you know, Netflix displays these box shots for every movie. And it was obvious to everybody watching, uh, everybody standing around over my shoulder when I pulled this thing up. It was quickly obvious. There was a scantily clad female lead on the box shot. 
And it's like, oh gosh, it's that's what's tantalizing about it to, I suppose, uh, you know, certain members of our audience. They were uh, influenced by the content on the box shot. And it became apparent to us. And then we pulled up a few others that had the same conditions. They were being played differentially well or, or more than we would have thought. And we saw this pattern pretty quickly that these were, you know, scantily clad females. And we're like, oh gosh, well, it only took a human a millisecond to recognize what was going on. Why didn't our machines catch this? Um, now, this was a time, this was several years ago before um, deep learning uh, became more popular, and perhaps we can catch this with machines these days. It hadn't even thought, uh, crossed our mind back at this time. This is probably, you know, 2008 or 2009. Um, and Actually, uh, this brings up the uh, notion of basically feature engineering and feature selection, right? So uh, right. I think that's one of the things that deep learning uh, is able to do is... Uh, in an automatic way using gradient descent, uh, device higher and higher feature representation. In your case, you have humans in the loop. So how do humans uh, help you with feature selection? In, in our case, what we do, we, we pretty much exhaust everything we can um, with machines um, first. Um, the, so you, you described a workflow that was fairly accurate. We, we do machine processing first every time we're going to uh, put together a collection of clothing for somebody. Oh, I should probably explain to your listeners what Stitch Fix is, by the way. Um, so it's um, e-commerce, it's women's clothing. But with the very important difference is the customer is not picking out the clothes. They, they're going to trust us to do that. This is for the busy uh, females that don't have time to shop, but they still care about looking good. Um, so they really want um, somebody to do this shopping for them. If you could just pick out some clothes for me, you send them to me, and I will tell you whether or not I like them. Right, so it's a recommendation engine with, but with a much greater commitment because we're going to actually ship the clothes to the customer sight unseen. The first time they're going to see it is when it hits their doorstep, and they can actually experience it. They could try it on in the privacy of their own home with their own shoes and wardrobe, etc. Um, and they're under no obligation to keep anything. Right, if they don't like it, they can send anything they don't like. They can send it back, including all of it, if they don't want. Um, and we pay the shipping both ways. So it's a recommendation engine, but we have a much greater commitment because we're paying shipping both ways. We got the cost of the inventory right. being out, and how much getting it right matters. Yes, it really does. Um, it, it's you know we have severe penalties, and when you have those conditions, you can start to justify a lot of things. Um, you know, so we have over fifty people now working on algorithms at Stitch Fix, um, and we also have two thousand stylists that also curate fixes um, to make sure that they are exhausting everything we possibly can to get the right things to the right customers, right? So it's that important. And when you find yourself committing at that level, you do a lot of exotic and innovative things, um, including combining machine learning with expert human judgment. Which, okay. I, which actually uh, uh, brings up this uh, larger uh, trend that I'm seeing, which is uh, businesses uh, used to only kind of pay lip service to uh, data science and algorithms. But increasingly, you have companies like Stitch Fix where the entire business model is dependent on data science. That's right. And that's what makes it an exciting place to work if you're a data scientist, that what you do really, really matters. And I, I talk about this to contrast from a couple of other companies. Um, you know, if you, if you take a company such as Nike, Nike's got a different business model. They're going to produce this, you know, apparel items for athletic wear. And what they have to do is make sure that these things succeed because they're going to be basing their decisions on what clothes to produce on very little data, if anything. It's, a, it's just a different model. 
So what they do is they have brilliant marketers that are going to make sure that this stuff is cool. And they do that through, you know, um, getting the very best celebrity endorsements. They get the, they pay LeBron James to wear the shoes or to wear the clothes. Um, and they present amazing imagery through their commercials and their ads, right? So they are ensuring their success that this stuff, no matter how it looks, it will be made cool through the power of marketing. And they pull no stops when it comes to their marketing. They will do whatever it takes to succeed. And they are brilliant at it. Now, if I were to work in marketing, I would want to work at Nike because that's where you have every incentive to be the best in the world at what you do. We can take another example, Apple. Apple's best in the world at product design. They blow everyone else out of the water. And when they want to be best in the world at something, again, you pull no stop. So uh, there's a great story about um, in the book called Inside Apple about Jonathan Ives, their lead designer, how he took his whole team to Japan to study the making of the samurai sword, because that's the exact composite metal they got to, for the casing of the laptop, right? And these are the type of things you do when you have to be best in the world at something. And if I were to work in product design, that's where I'd want to be at Apple. Now, Stitch Fix is different. Our business model is different. We are betting big on algorithms. We do not have the other barriers to entry uh, or barriers to competition that other retailers have. Like Walmart has economies of scale that allows them to do amazing things. That's their big barrier. You got even Netflix, they have barriers in the form of content exclusivity. They have House of Cards and Orange is the New Black. Nobody else can have those things, right? And then you got Amazon with this amazing shipping. Right? I order something last night and I get it today. That's incredible. But Stitch Fix, we don't have those things. We're not going to compete on economy sales. We're not the low price leader at all. Um, we don't have fast shipping. Amazon will beat, beat the pants off us. And we don't have exclusivity. Most of our stuff you can find elsewhere if you look hard enough. So what are we banking on? What is our protective barrier? It's best in the world at algorithms. We have to be the very best given our huge penalties if when we're wrong more than any other company, we are going to suffer if we're wrong. And but, so we uh, I guess uh, one of the things that I have observed about you and I kind of appreciate this, this notion of kind of the appreciation for having humans in the loop, right? Because uh, one of my pet peeves, actually, Eric, is, uh, you know, now that deep learning is doing well in certain tasks, somehow people are like, uh, implying that uh, that strong AI, but it's really not, right? So it's very uh, domain-specific and task-specific. I think that for a, uh, for the foreseeable future, these augmented systems like what you guys have is still going to be hard to beat, right? Right. And again, we're betting on additive results that, you know, machines can take do, you know, certain tasks very well, humans can do certain tasks very well, and we're looking to combine them. We're not looking... We're yeah, trying the combination of the two is hard to beat. Exactly. And it's, it's very hard to do. And it's, um, you know, it's going to be, it's a capability that's very hard to copy too. You can't, you're not going to, if you're a, a, another company, a retailer, for example, in women's clothes, you can't just say, hey, let's do what Stitch Fix does. Let's do that too. It's a DNA thing. It's built into the DNA of your company. It's like saying, I want to be taller. You, know, you can't just say that. And, and it's not like it's going to, hard work is going to reward and, and you're going to be taller. No, this is something that's built into the fabric of the company. And so Katrina Lake, our founder, this was her DNA. She wanted to do this from the very beginning, you know, combined uh, empiricism with uh, what can't be captured in data, uh, you know, call it intuition or judgment. Um, but she really wanted to weave those two things together to produce something that was better than either can do on her own. She calls it art and science, combining art and science. To be honest, actually, uh, a lot of 
uh, data scientists talk about human in the loop and active learning, but I think that very few do actually do it well or know how to do it well. And I think it's still at that stage, and correct me if I'm wrong, my impression is uh, to do these things well, you almost have to apprentice with groups that uh, are uh, doing it at scale and really reaping uh, uh, the success from uh, these the best practices of combining uh, humans and algorithms. As you say, it's art and science. It's hard to really just read about it. Right. It, it really is um, something that you're going to have to do through experience. We work very closely with academics as well on this. But, you know, I would argue that our pace of learning is going much faster because we have real experience, real data. To real work. data. That's yeah. the key, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Right. And I mean, and, and just to clarify, one thing that perhaps is a little different from active learning is we don't use our, our, our humans. They're, we're not training the machines. Um, for the most part, we're not using the humans to train the machines. We use customer response to train the machines. Right. So again, uh, our stylists, our human stylists, are doing a different task from the machines. So we're not trying to get the humans to teach the machines. They're not the gold center. They're just doing a very different task. They're experts doing something else. They're it's being augmented by the machine. Yeah, you're not trying to get the machines to emulate humans. You're, doing, you're having the machines do what machines are great at and having humans do what humans are great at, right? So there's not like they're, we're trying to replace humans. No, we're trying to very much include them both. And just to be very clear, I'll give you a real example. There's, you know, part of our service that uh, provides a lot of value to our customer is relationship with another human. I mean, these, our stylists and our clients, they exchange notes. Yeah, and so they, <laughs> they would not like it if we were a machine-only solution, right? They want somebody to relate to. It's, you know, similar. There's a lot of literature that suggests that um, an algorithmic uh, diagnosis, uh, you know, medical diagnosis are far superior to a human doctor, right? But which one would you rather, you know, um, talk with? <laughs> right, right. A machine that's going to output the results or a doctor who might be able to empathize with you and, you know, talk to you uh, about the condition you might have, whatever he diagnosed you with. Um, you know, this is a very different set of benefits that you're getting from versus the diagnoses alone, right? And so, it, it, you know, that's what we're trying to do here. We're not trying to replace, we're trying to combine. By the way, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the work of Adam Marcus and Unlimited Labs, but uh, they just open source a system called Orchestra. Yes. Um, it's uh, basically, reminds me of what you guys are doing, which is basically they're using algorithms to empower uh, human experts. Right. And it's it's interesting. I mean, most of the literature on human computation to date has been around lay tasks. So, you know, identifying if there's a dog in this picture or if there's a, if the phone number is legible and, you know, this street view thing, you know, these types of tasks um, where uh, they're, they're, most of your effort there is in um, making sure you have quality responses from um, the crowd on these lay tasks because some people have bots responding to those things just to get paid and so forth. Um, but the difference here is we're talking about expert tasks. Again, these are um, fashionistas. These are right. people that are putting together or curating sets of clothing for somebody. Um, and that requires a lot of skill, right? These are not things that so you... So you are just... not uh, replacing humans and destroying jobs or creating jobs. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, we will keep growing our human workforce, um, uh, you know, at a, at a rapid clip, clip here. Um, and, you know, again, they are providing a very different value than our machines could ever do. And also, I, actually, uh, uh, Tim O'Reilly talks a lot about this. Uh, I mean, people uh, always kind of simplify things and say that, you know, robots and 
and algorithms are going to destroy jobs. Well, not necessarily. Like in your case, you're just changing the nature of the job, right? That's right. And I would argue that the, our, our, our humans could not do their job without the machines, right? We keep our inventory very large so that there's always great things to pick from for every, any given customer, right? But it's so large, in fact, that it would take a human too long to sift through it on her own. And so what the you know machines are doing is narrowing the focus down. Don't worry about these. These aren't her size. Don't worry about those. She's going to hate these. Focus over here. They've already been you know, they infused with all the compatibility metrics, right? And that makes our much more precious human resources um, more efficient, right? They're, they're far more costly than machines. Um, and so you have to really use the machines to make the humans more effective. By the way, I want, so I wanted to close by taking advantage of the fact that uh, I have, as my guest, one of the people who've built large data science teams in uh, at least two places, Netflix and now Stitch Fix. We had a conversation a while back where you threw out some number of the number of people that you've hired over the years in data science. It was a big number. But anyway, uh, uh, how has your thinking changed, Eric, in terms of putting together data science teams and processes? Um, well, I guess it, it hasn't changed a ton. If you go talk to people on my uh, uh, old team back at Netflix, I think they'd say, oh, yeah, that, that's Eric. But I, perhaps pushing things a little further, um, uh, leaning on things a little harder now. And the, the, probably the main principle I, I do is I favor generalists. So that means we don't really divide up the roles by technology. You don't have folks that focus on you're um, only an algorithm person yeah so we, we you know the folks on my team they can name themselves whatever they want some people choose algorithm developer or data scientist or machine learnist whatever they want um so the, the, we don't care too much about the, their title but their roles are different um from what you'd find at other companies they have to do the end-to-end -end thing right so um they have to do, build their own pipelines they have to um you know uh, frame the problems themselves um, they have to do the math and the analytic work. They have to write their own code. It's going to run in production, um, you know, to do their algorithm, algorithmic processing. They have to have um, communication and presentation skills, I assume. They, yep, they have to have the powers of persuasion and they have to be super articulate to be able to, you know, uh, push through a lot of the things that we have to do because you, you almost always have to, uh, you know, touch lots of parts of the company. Um, depending on which part it is, you might have to, um, uh, so, you know. Uh, let, let me ask you this. So uh, at the interview stage, do you make them uh, come up with some weird, obscure sorting algorithm? You know, <laughs> I, I confess that, that some of the team does uh, ask for uh, interesting um, tests that we do. Other times it's um, take-home tests and so forth. It, it's a case-by-case -case basis. We have no rule for interviewing. It's more we ask the hiring manager, well, what would you need to know about this person? What would help you make your decision if this is a great person or not? And so sometimes there's, uh, you know, uh, odd tests and other times no. Um, other times it's take home. Other times, you know, we don't even feel the need for any of it. We're just, sometimes you can meet someone and within five minutes know she's the one, for example. So where, uh, where do you stand on the, maybe, maybe Stitch Fix isn't big enough for this question, but where do you stand on the whole having a centralized data science team as opposed to data scientists dispersed across business units? That's a great question. So we've arrived at, we do central. The reason being it's better for their career path and better for collaboration and 
camaraderie. Um, so career path being one of the biggest drivers. So, you know, we have a team of about 55 now. Um, and it turns out most of them, if you talk to them, their aspirations are to lead a data science team. They want to be more like me, for example, than for one of their partners that they might work with, because we have algorithms throughout the company. So there's lots of like marketing type of algorithms and they'd work closely with the marketing team. There's also merchandise algorithms and they'd work with the merchandising team. But it turns out if you ask those folks, do you, um, you know, would you want to be like Lisa, our chief merchant, or do you want to be like Julie who acts as our, our, our CMO? Um, and no, most of the time their passion is being a data scientist and a good litmus test is you can ask them, what conference would you rather go to? And I'm not familiar with the marketing conferences. I'm sure they exist. And you can ask them, do you want to go to those conferences or would you rather go to the KDD or Strata, right? And usually- Strata. They, uh, Strata, right? <laughs> usually they say, oh no, that's where I want to be. That's what I want to learn. That's where my career path is. So then it becomes very obvious, okay, these folks need um, a career path or at least uh, opportunity for growth and that we can serve better if they're in the central team. But we do align them to work with specific groups. So we do dedicate, okay, you're going to work on marketing algorithms. You're part of you know, this central team. But that the, you work do, do you get stuff. rotated? You, you, we haven't figured out a process for that. We're very open to mobility between the teams. You know, that would be something if people ever got bored of what they work on. But so far, there's, no, there's certain, <laughs> obviously, uh, I don't know where you stand on this, but there's definitely domain knowledge matter. So. You oh, do of course. Need to spend I mean, a little bit of time with that team, probably. Right? Yeah, you need to build this up, right? So, back to how we design the roles. They're they're built on three premises that come from um, Dan Pink's book Drive. So, uh, autonomy, mastery, purpose. Those are the fundamental things you need to have high job satisfaction. So, with autonomy, that's what we dedicate them to a team. You're going to now work on what's called marketing algorithms, right? And so you are you may not know anything about marketing to begin with, but you're going to learn it pretty fast. You're going to pick up the domain expertise. And by autonomy, we want you to do the whole thing so you have full context. You're going to be the one sourcing the data, building pipelines. You're going to be applying the algorithmic routine. You're going to be the one that frames that problem, figure out what algorithms you need. And you're the one delivering the output and connecting it back to some action, whatever that action may be. Maybe it's adjusting our multi-channel strategy, right? Whatever that uh, algorithmic output is, you're responsible for it. So that's mastery. Now you're autonomous because you do all the pieces. You're getting mastery over one domain, in that case, say marketing algorithms, that you're going to be looked at as, you know, oh, you're the best person in the company to go talk about how these things work. You know the end to end. And then purpose. That's the impact that you're going to make uh, in the case uh, that we gave uh, marketing algorithms, right? You want to be accountable. You want to be the one that can move the needle when it comes to like how much you know paid spend should we do? How much? What channels are more effective at acquiring new customers? Whatever it is, you're going to be held accountable for a real number, and that is motivating. That's what people uh, makes them love their jobs. All right, so this has been great, and uh, we look forward to uh, your session at Strata Plus Hadoop World in San Jose and. Uh, Thank you so much, Eric, for sharing uh, uh, your experiences at Netflix and uh, your work in human computation at Stitchfix. Thanks, Ben. Always a pleasure to talk to you. You can follow Eric Colson on Twitter at Eric Colson. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode. <laughs>